not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension? There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show. Recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the community radio network and podcast on the internet at bze.org.au and 3cr.org.au and whichever podcasting app you choose to use. G'day, my name is Anthony Daniel and joining me today is Craig Memory from the ATA. How are you, Craig? I'm well, thanks, Anthony. Yourself? Very well, thank you. And, you know, we've had you on the show many times because you're doing such great work with the ATA. Uh, Maybe you can give before we go on, a bit of a, a brief introduction to yourself and what you do in that organisation. Sure, thanks for having me back on. My main role with ATA is as an energy consumer advocate, so I'm funded by the Consumer Advocacy Panel, which has now turned into Energy Consumers Australia, and in that capacity I'm funded to represent Australian energy consumers with respect to ensuring that they have access to affordable and sustainable energy. I also work with our policy and research team to do various different research projects that we've got going into emerging technology and emerging issues. Your role as a consumer advocate puts you on a lot of committees and a lot of uh, situations where you're making really some core decisions on what I could be paying for electricity in 10, 20, 30 years' time. How do you grapple with the enormity of that task, especially when you probably consider you're a lone voice in a lot of those situations? Yeah, look, there's not that many of us. The consumer advocacy is increasing in size, so that voice is getting a bit bigger. But yeah, we are vastly outnumbered by the many billions of dollars of industry that's on the other side of the fence or the other side of the boxing ring, depending on on how you look at it. In a lot of ways, it makes it interesting. It means that we don't tend to spend all our time involved in specific and narrow aspects of of advocacy because we can't afford to. We have to sort of be across the whole energy market and all aspects of that. So that's enjoyable. It means that there's a lot of variety. It means that I get to work across energy distribution, retail, generation, the market side of it, the consumer protection side of it, the policy reforms, engaging with all of the different energy market institutions at a national level and also a fair bit of state level stuff as well. So there's no two days or alike. So. Absolutely. Fantastic. Fantastic. Mm. And uh, when people talk about energy, their mind would immediately go to electricity. But of course, there's a, there's a whole lot more than that. And uh, the, the report that you've recently released or mm-hmm. about to release um, um, is called uh, Are We Still Cooking With Gas? And it really goes into to, into into that aspect of our, of our energy system. We've got these two parallel energy systems that serve our homes and businesses and ostensibly do the same thing. It's all about powering appliances, keeping us warm, keeping us lit. And gas does some of those things. And uh, and BZE, of course, has been a very strong advocate of getting rid of gas entirely because if you're going to have any chance of of decarbonising an energy system, you've got to get rid of this direct combustion of a fossil fuel at at the point of use. And that there is, of course, a lot of ways that we can produce electricity that doesn't doesn't involve burning fossil fuels. So we're better off standardising on that. But BZD has that very top-down approach where they go, okay, well, this is the best for the economy, but it's also best for, of course, um, 
future threats of climate change. What posture does the ATA take when, they are, when they're looking at a question like this? Yeah, so it's, it's an interesting one. This research is a bit narrower than looking at the whole picture with gas. It's just looking at the price and the price to consumers. And that was the area that we felt was quite deficient in terms of the body of knowledge that was out there. BZE and others do great work in raising awareness and uh, campaigning for degassing the, the, the energy sector as it is and a lot of people are doing that on the ground and obviously that's the sort of approach that ATA's core membership are very sympathetic to as well and many of ATA's members are also involved in those things. Coming at it from the consumer advocacy side, what I really wanted to understand was well we know that gas is getting has got more expensive, however that's been largely overshadowed by the bigger increases in prices that we've seen in electricity. We know that gas is going to get more expensive still because the East Coast gas market is opening up and we don't know by how much, but it's one thing that's certain is that gas prices are going to continue to go up. Can you give us a bit of a background first on why that is? Yeah, so the historical gas price rises just because it's cost more to extract gas, more to pipe it to our homes with time. And also to a large extent, the businesses that have been the businesses that are responsible for reticulating gas, which are the networks, in the last few years have enjoyed very high returns or very high costs. It's hard to characterise it accurately. <laughs> right. They've enjoyed very high returns on the back of what we could see as very generous um, uh, allowances for the cost of capital. So all of those has factored into there. The East Coast gas market opening up means that we'll be competing with international buyers of gas where we haven't had to do that previously. And so our domestic gas users will see prices that will be in step with the longer term prices that gas is exported for, which will be a yeah. lot higher. So all these new um, sources of gas have encouraged processing plants and liquefaction plants to export the gas, which is bringing us up to parity more or less it's actually with the international bit, market. It's a bit more the other way around. So having that ability to access the international market is what actually spurs the introduction of new gas extraction. Right. So uh, coal seam gas is not cost effective to extract unless you've got a market that pays more than Australian domestic energy users. And that's where the export market has enabled that to start to compete economically. And that's why there's a bit of a gas rush on now. And so what are, gas prices have already gone up, but what, mm -hmm. what are the forecasts telling you of where it's likely to go? Look, they're all over the shop and it's very difficult. If, if you have a look at the forecasts that are available, you'll see that some suggest that the wholesale price might increase by 50%. Some suggest the wholesale price might triple. Not all of that will flow through to residential customers because the wholesale price is only a relatively small part of their cost. Could be that residential bills might go up by as much as 50% though. And so that that's quite a big increase. It'll actually be felt a lot harder by large energy users because for them wholesale prices are a much bigger component of the bill and some of them are facing a doubling or more right. increase. It's very uncertain over what time that will occur though. I mean there's a lot of factors that affect the international price. Japan has turned off a lot of its nuclear capacity post Fukushima which drove up the gas price quite a lot but if they turn that back on because they're facing energy constraint issues now in Japan and they're having issues with their market, then that could have the reverse effect of bringing gas prices down, as could the gas, uh, the US gas export market that's opening up. So there's a lot of uncertainty about where future prices will go. A lot of the forecasts suggest that we'll see a bit of a price bubble in the wholesale market, or at least a, a sudden increase. They diverge a lot with respect to the long term. Most of them agree that costs might come back down in the longer term. However, there's uh, very 
differing views of, of by how much. Sure. And how does this then relate to that what's been making news over the past six months in the in the real drop in the oil price? I guess and people are saying that it would affect the gas price. And, you know, people talk about oil and gas in the same breath. Can you maybe give us a bit of an explanation as to how those markets, firstly, are interrelated and how their prices may affect each other? Yeah. So for reasons that are a bit boring to go into, the oil price internationally is linked to the gas price. And how it flows through to affecting the gas prices we see as consumers is quite complicated. Residential consumers face gas prices that are adjusted, usually no more often than annually. And the, the retailers that are buying the gas from the wholesale market for those consumers are taking the risk in volatility that might occur, either by having longer term contracts with the suppliers themselves, or they might be the suppliers, or charging a premium for the risk of volatility that they're exposed to. For larger energy users, they're more closely exposed to those prices as they occur, and larger energy users are having a lot more trouble at the moment getting longer term contracts for gas for that reason. So it has been discussed that we might see a shift away from the coupling of oil prices with gas prices uh, as the markets are increasingly separate. And I think we've seen some signs internationally that that is starting to occur as well. Right. Well, one of the motivations for coming up with a report like this was because of the fact that while these gas prices are going up, we're seeing alternatives. And we talked about the the electricity coming in. But of course, gas has traditionally been very popular amongst consumers because of its uh, relative price uh, savings compared to electricity and perhaps that the the appliances that use electricity to to substitute that need may be more expensive. But what's your research telling you on, on what's the changes are going on in, in that space? Yeah, well, traditionally, the things that you use gas for are for heating homes and heating water and, and cooking And for a long time, it was a very cheap, effective way of doing all of those things. In the last few years, and this is what really spurred us to do this research, as well as gas prices going up, we've seen improvement in all the things that you can use to do that, those same functions with with electricity. So uh, AC split systems for heating and cooling, they've improved a lot in price and they've improved a lot in efficiency. The electric induction cooktops, so you'd never suggest that someone ditches cooking with uh, gas for cooking with electric resistance cooktops, because electric resistance cooktops suck, whereas cooking with gas is relatively uh, something that we're all more familiar with and it's a lot more fun. Electric induction cooktops, though, which are in many regards safer and for consumers who are experienced with them, a preferable way to cook than, than gas for most people, they've become a lot more cost effective and cheaper to buy up front as well. And the electric heat pumps for heating water uh, have improved a lot as well, particularly in reliability. Some of the older heat pumps uh, and some of the cheaper ones really aren't so reliable. But in recent years, we've seen a general overall improvement in those and a bit more of a separation between the better quality ones and the rest. Okay, so um, this is... uh there's a lot of complexity, and obviously this is something that the ATA loves getting their teeth into, is saying, well, how can we bring all this stuff together and be able to give good recommendations to a consumer that obviously is, is looking at all this and thinking, well, I'm okay, I'm just going to stick with what I've got until there's a compelling reason not to. What approach did you take to, to, to the problem? Mm. So the approach that we took to the problem was to say, well, we just want to understand what are consumers going to be better off using economically. Are they going to be better off using gas? And if so, when? Are they going to be better off using electricity? And if so, when? And a particular focus of all our research is looking at the impacts on disadvantaged and vulnerable consumers. So we wanted to have particular regard for what the options were and what the impacts were from them. So to do this, as you mentioned, we're a bit geeky and technical and we like to do things thoroughly. So we considered a lot of different aspects of how consumers use their appliances in in a lot of detail 
We had to consider these for different types of homes, different types of consumers, household size. Very importantly, there's a big distinction between new homes that are being built and the case for them to go dual fuel or single fuel. For existing homes, whether they are looking to existing all electric homes that aren't connected to gas, whether or not they should connect to gas into in the whether it would help them save money or not, compared to say, for example, spending that same money on efficient electric opportunities. And the most challenging one, the very complicated one to analyse, is what about existing gas customers? Should they be replacing some or all of their appliances with more gas appliances? Or should they be replacing them with electricity? Again, just in the interest of, of saving money as distinct from the uh, environmental side of it. And look, that's really just the beak of the penguin on the tip of the iceberg in terms of the complexity of it. Across Australia, gas prices vary a lot. And there are about, well, I think 30 or more different gas pricing zones across the country. So we right. had to consider homes in those zones separately. They all, of course, have different electricity prices in a lot of those, and they have different climates. So it's pretty fair to say that no two gas pricing zones are exactly alike, and therefore we had to consider them all uh, and model them all separately. What this has led to is very separate conclusions, different conclusions for different types of households in different areas. Generally speaking, we found that the easiest upfront conclusion was that for new homes that are built today, where they can install efficient electric, and I'll get to what that qualification means shortly, there is absolutely no business case for them to connect to the gas network for a new home that's built today. And this is something where the gas may be available on, the, on their street, and uh, that would still be the case. Yep. So the classic example is the new estate that's being built. Usually they've got gas piped through the streets and most homes, as a matter of course, connect to them, particularly in Victoria, where conventional wisdom prevails that gas is cheaper and cost effective and cleaner and uh, more efficient. Now, for new homes that are built, we, we considered like with like. So we compared the efficient gas options that are available with the efficient electric options. And we considered only appliances that offered as much or uh, electric appliances that offered at least as good amenity as gas. Like I mentioned before, you wouldn't go comparing, you wouldn't even bother comparing gas cooking with um, electric resistance. Likewise, you yep. wouldn't compare gas ducted heating with just a single split system air conditioner that can only effectively heat one or two rooms. So what we did for heating, for example, is we compared gas heating with having multiple electric split system heaters, which is the most cost-effective way to heat using uh, electricity. And obviously doing that kind of stuff up front in a new home is cost-effective and is very comparable if you're choosing electricity compared to gas. It so is. The key point for us in our research, it was very easy to do that bit of the analysis because you don't have to take into account what the treatment of existing appliances and so on. Right. Um, now, all of our research, of course, takes into account the upfront cost, takes into account the ongoing fuel costs of electricity or gas, and takes into account the the maintenance cost as well. So, is, and there's like a ten year pricing out in terms of your analysis. Yeah, we agonised over which um, approach to use to asset life, and what we found that was that if we use ten years as a as a as a window for our assessment. Firstly, it better reflects uh, the investment decisions that most households make. The majority of households don't make big decisions that have more than a 10-year payback, at least not with the intention of taking more than 10 years to, to, to pay for themselves. And the other factor is that most of the appliances, if they're reasonable quality, will 
be assumed to last more than 10 years. Some last a lot longer. Uh, you know, some gas wall uh, heater systems will easily last 20 years or more. Uh, whereas, uh, you know, some water heaters might last for less time. But generally, 10 years was a good common denominator there. Sure. Um, now, I will just cover that one point that I said I'd come back to, though, on new homes, and that is when electric-efficient appliances are an option. So there is a case where some consumers will be better off connecting gas, economically better off, for new homes, and that is where they are unable to install the efficient electric appliances. Now, what characterises those is, in the case of water heating and space heating, is that they require external compressor units. So... You'll see for electric heat pumps, for water heating, as well as for AC reverse cycle air conditioners, they require external compressors. Now, consumers in very high density areas might not be able to install both of those, particularly right. for high rise apartments. So what we found was that economically in those cases, that is the exception. That's where consumers, those consumers might be better off with gas. After getting feedback from the energy distribution businesses that very sportingly gave us feedback on our report, we also acknowledged that some of them are making a commercial decision to subsidise people connecting new gas appliances, and that affects the economics as well. Therefore, some of those homes might be better off connecting to gas. But. We're on the Beyond Zero show and I'm speaking to Craig Memory uh, from the Alternative Technology Association and we're discussing the report, Are We Still Cooking With Gas? And we've, we're discussing the findings and we've been through homes that are new homes or are already all electric homes and what approach they should take. But you've also got findings on, 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 two, other, uh, asp- on two other types of, of um, buildings. Can you uh, go into those in more detail? Sure, I will. On to your question regarding yeah, existing dual fuel. Dual fuel yeah. yeah, so this is where a lot of uh, the situation that most people would be in who are mm. listening. Yeah. Uh, what was your, your main uh, outcomes there? Yeah, so there's a lot of key findings around that were that there are a lot of things that actually influence whether or not a dual fuel home should replace some or all of their appliances. One of the main ones was the age or condition of the existing gas appliance. So if it's something that's due for replacement anyway, then there's a different economic case for replacing it with electric than something that's working perfectly well. Um, Whether or not it's the last appliance that you've got connected. Now, if you've got one gas appliance connected, and you remove it, and that allows you to disconnect from the network, then you avoid fixed charges, which might be one or $200 a year. And that has a big impact on whether or not it's economic for some homes to disconnect some appliances from gas and replace them with electric. As I mentioned before, whether or not the household is actually able to install the electric appliances is another major factor, largely due to the ability to have an external compressor, but also in the case of those homes, if they don't have to do major rewiring to accommodate an induction cooktop, which is the case for some homes, particularly older ones. Also, whether the gas supply is mains or bottled gas, that has different economic impacts as well. Now, I mentioned before climate. There's a few, there's quite a few other factors, but climate's a really important one. And the reason for that is it affects two things in relation to gas and electricity demand. One is the heating load. So when the heating load is much higher in a cooler climate, you need more gas and you need more electricity. So the fuel cost is a bigger impact, has a bigger impact, if you like, on the long-term economics. But the other one is the performance of electric high-efficiency appliances for space and water heating. So in particularly colder climates, the efficiency dropped quite significantly of some appliances for space heating and water heating. So we took that into account in our analysis and the result was quite interesting. 
what we found was that even with that efficiency penalty, in a lot of cases, consumers were still better off moving their space heating to electric. Even, than even, gas. In the, even in the, the coldest parts of the country? Even in the coldest parts of the country. So we took some really conservative approaches on both sides of the equation uh, because we wanted to produce a report that is defensible and by all accounts it seems that that's what we've done. And in order to do that, we actually took a pretty conservative approach to the heating efficiency of electric appliances as well. Okay, so you've got specific recommendations for people who may be in certain situations, but you had some overall recommendations from the report. Firstly, who are you recommending to in that scenario? Mm. So that's a good question. Um, There's quite a few different agents, I guess, institutions who our report is targeted at. In one respect, it's providing information for consumers. Now, the report is pretty well presented in a readable way for the average person. At least the first few pages are nicely summarised and in pretty plain English. And uh, the more detailed stuff that BZE and and ATA people will be particularly interested in is generally relegated to the appendices. But we've generally targeted our recommendations to policymakers, to market institutions, to some extent to the energy businesses themselves, and also to related institutions such as Department of Housing. The recommendations that we've made, firstly, the the first two are just to improve energy concessions and potentially control gas prices for disadvantaged consumers so that with prices going up, they don't experience bill shock. We're talking here about customers who have experienced the worst uh, impact from the big electricity price increases that we've seen over the last few years. Energy poverty is is at its highest, and that's not something that we're seeing improving. In fact, the rate of disconnections of people for not being able to pay their bills where they can't actually access the essential service of energy is at its highest ever as well. So that was our Wasn't the repeal of the carbon tax meant to fix that, Greg? Yeah, it was. And uh, there was a wonderful thing, the repeal of the carbon tax, because it gave us all such cheap energy bills. And you can see that it's absolutely ended poverty and we're all living happily ever after. I think there was a report Um, a couple of months ago that said in Victoria it lasted eight months for the price to get back to where it was yeah. after the repeal? Well, we uh, in the longer-term impacts that we've seen with electricity prices in particular, there has been some flow-through that you can see of reduced, carbon, uh, reduced prices with the carbon tax. We also saw that with gas prices, but a lot of that decrease has been absorbed by the increases that have occurred. In New South Wales in the same year, we had an average increase of something like 17 or so percent for the average consumer in, for gas, which vastly outpaced any any carbon tax benefit. Look, another very important recommendation we made was that we need to provide better information for consumers in relation to what the most affordable options are for them. Now, we can't just go out and say gas is always the cheap option because it's not. But in a lot of cases where consumers would have once made a decision to go with gas, particularly for new homes, it now isn't. And so what needs to occur is a very significant education campaign to just bring public awareness that that conventional wisdom that we hold is actually no longer no longer true. In a similar vein, we find that there's a lot of businesses who these days should know better uh, and are marketing their gas products as being inherently cheaper. And in some of those cases, it's incorrect. So we're calling on the ACCC to um, improve their regulatory oversight of those businesses. 
Um, and you, you talked about the fact that there was incentives for a lot of people to put in gas appliances. Yeah. In your analysis, did you sort of analyse if if those incentives weren't there, there would actually be a, a, you know, a much overall benefit for them to go to electric substitutes and perhaps recommend that those those subsidies should therefore be reversed or at least yeah. come to a level playing field? Yeah, so that's a really good one. Now, the incentive that exists at the moment isn't a direct incentive for consumers, although it might get passed on as such. It's an incentive for gas businesses to roll out gas to towns that don't currently have it. And in Victoria, we've got this thing called the Energy for the Regions Scheme. It's $100 million program that is designed to subsidise gas distribution networks to roll out gas to customers in regional areas that don't currently have it and connect them to new gas networks. Now, you you can't criticise the original intention of the program, which was to bring people more affordable energy. However, as we've seen by this information of the last few years that's come to light and this new information now, it's no longer a good idea. If those consumers want to really save money, they're going to be best off not investing that money in new gas appliances, but investing in an efficient electric. They're in regional areas. So generally, they're not the case of that high density development that I I spoke about before, where they might be better off with gas. Interestingly, um, a committee in New South Wales that's advising the New South Wales government has recently looked at gas in New South Wales regional areas, and they've looked at the Victorian plan and said, wow, that's a really good scheme. We should do something like that here. (laughs) That's not a view that's reflected by people in Victoria. One of the key findings that we had was that because that scheme doesn't actually pay for the full cost of connecting those otherwise uneconomic gas connections, to people in those areas, the gas bills that they're receiving actually end up being higher than other consumers anyway. So those consumers who are ostensibly getting connected to new gas networks in regional areas with the view of saving money are not only on a bad wicket, they're paying more than other gas consumers for the same privilege. Wow, wow. Well, let's let's finish off. We've only got a couple of minutes left, but let's finish off by talking about go full circle and talked about the fact that BZD, from their perspective, BZD's perspective would want to decommission the, the gas network altogether. We have two parallel systems, and like you said, mm-hmm. we're paying $100 million to expand that across the regions. Obviously, just the cost of keeping up any kind of gas system is quite significant. Does ATA go into any detail on and any recommendations around decommissioning it entirely and and what that would do for affordability. In this report, we don't. But one of the key issues that we have, and we've written on this in, in, um, for example, Climate Spectator, one of the concerns that we have is that, well, naturally, consumers will move away from gas, and that's not a bad thing. Consumers are choosing to do that. However, the ones that will be left footing the bill for redundant, increasingly redundant gas networks will be those who are least able to afford to get off gas, and that will be low-income people who can't afford to make the, the switch. It will be renters who don't have a say about what appliances are in their buildings. So the issue there becomes, well, how do you manage that impact? And it's very challenging just to go out and disconnect a network because you can't force people to disconnect from something that they're connected to at the moment without forking out significant amounts of money to do so and having a very extensive program. It does make sense, I think, to 
subsidise people to make that switch in the same way that we do subsidise energy efficiency. However, one of the issues that's very related that we look at is, well, in relation to gas networks, and this is a lens that's being cast over electricity networks at the moment, how do you treat the asset base? There's a regulated asset base which has a certain value. In our view, the regulated asset base of gas networks might be on the brink of needing to be written down quite significantly. It will be in a similar death spiral as people have talked about with electricity. Yeah. Now, if the RAB doesn't get written down, that's when you end up with the prices going up quite dramatically for the consumers who can't afford it. And this is a very active conversation in New South Wales at the moment where they're facing the privatisation of their electricity networks and the potential for a high cost to be locked in for consumers. So we're of the view that there needs to be a bit of a precedent set of a preparedness to write down the uh, regulated asset base value for those networks and I think we're going to face a need to do that in gas in coming years to avoid consumers having to pay for that cost. Absolutely. So I think that's where we'll call the quit. So thanks for joining us again, Craig, and, and, and the ATA is doing some fantastic work. So whenever you produce the next piece of fantastic research, please be sure to, to give us a call. Thank you. Will do. Thank you for having me back on. You've been listening to the Beyond Zero show brought to you by the Climate Solutions Think Tank Beyond Zero Emissions. To find out more about what we do or get involved, visit us at bze.org.au. My name's Anthony Daniel. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.